0: All right, so we're recording, and uh, this is uh, February 21st, right? And uh, we're, we're going to be delving into Daniel 3 here. Uh, <laughs> Brenda, to bring you back from mute, would you mind uh, starting us in prayer today? <laughs>
1: sure, sure. <laughs> no problem. Uh, Father, we just come to you this afternoon, and we thank you for this study in Daniel, and it just seems so appropriate for such a time as this. And so we thank you for the insights, Pastor Mike Gleans, during his studies. We just pray your Holy Spirit would anoint us um, and reveal truths to us today. And we thank you. We can all be together, even if it's uh, digitally. Father, we're grateful for that technology. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Amen. All right, uh, before we delve into Daniel 3, a few clarifications from last week. I uh, just want to uh, make sure that I was right and uh, to clear up any possible confusion about Ezekiel and Jeremiah. Uh, a couple of questions came in, or at least one or two, about Ezekiel last week, and Ezekiel was born in Judah and was about the same age as, as Daniel, but Daniel was taken captive around 606, 605. Ezekiel was taken captive sometime later around 597 BC, so about uh, somewhere between nine and ten years maybe after uh, Daniel was taken captive, Ezekiel was taken captive in 597. If you remember, there were two, um, two more major waves of the Babylonians coming in and attacking Jerusalem and, and taking uh, the Jews captive. Uh, that first foray into Judah, uh, they basically took some of the noblemen, like Daniel. And remember, he was of a noble family, probably oh, 15, 16 years of age at the time. So uh, the second uh, incursion there was in 597. That's when Ezekiel was taken captive. And then there was a a next one, of course, in in 586, which was uh, the final um, attack. So after being taken captive, again, about 9 to 10 years after Daniel was, Ezekiel spent the rest of his time as a prophet in Babylon, and he's assumed to have died in Babylon as well, never uh, returning to Judah, never returning to Jerusalem although he prophesied about uh, about that return now jeremiah was a bullfrog no 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 not that one Jer- jeremiah the weeping prophet also prophesied during the time of daniel and ezekiel and i was i was which was probably a bad time to do it but i was doing the math about 230 this morning and i've got it right <clears throat> Jeremiah was probably maybe 25 years older than Daniel. Jeremiah, born in Judah as well, spent most of his life prophesying there from 627 to 585 BC. And his, uh, his ministry ended about the time that King Nebuchadnezzar launched his final assault On Jerusalem and carried away then the majority of Jews into Babylon. But Jeremiah did not go to Babylon. What happened was Jeremiah's own people, he was not loved by his own people, if you remember. Um, So Jeremiah, uh, before the last Babylonian attack, uh, he was put in jail, taken prisoner by his own government by his own Jewish government, and he was put in prison. Uh, however, and that was under uh, King uh, Jehoiakim, uh, and so he was a pri- he was a prisoner. Jeremiah was at the time that the Babylonian assault came in 586. The Babylonians, ironically, were the ones that released Jeremiah, not not his own Jewish people, which I think is amazing, and it's thought that uh, when Jeremiah was released by the Babylonians, that some Jews who still didn't like Jeremiah very well carried him off to Egypt. And um, so he was executed, we think, by his fellow Jews in Egypt. So um, although Ezekiel went to Babylon and, and died there, Jeremiah never went to Babylon Uh, He stayed in Judah as a prisoner and then was taken uh, as uh, a prisoner to Egypt and killed by his own um, Jews there. So anyway, there's some interesting details there about uh, Ezra, about uh, Ezekiel rather, and and Jeremiah around the same time. Uh, Before we start, I thought we'd have a little fun. And I'm I'm going to have to turn the recording off while we do this. We're going to play a song, and because of copyright issues, I'm going to have to uh, pause the recording. So if you're listening to the recording, you can call me. I'll tell you what it was, or I'll send it to you. But uh, because of copyright laws, I I can't put it on the recording. Uh, So I'm going to stop here, pause it for the recording people a blast from the past well wasn't that fun uh for those of (laughs) you for those of you on the recording that was uh johnny cash and i think uh i think that was the uh the gaither uh band behind him uh but anyway it's a, a song called the fourth man and so that's uh, Johnny Cash's version of Daniel 3. Uh, they wouldn't bend, they wouldn't bow, they wouldn't burn. So anyway, like you said, awesome. uh, Brenda, that, that was wasn't fabulous. that a blast from the past? <laughs> yeah, that, that was really fun. All yeah. right. So let's uh, let's get into Daniel chapter 3. Thought that would lighten things up a little bit. All right, here we go. Starting at the top of the chapter. Mike. Yes, sir.
1: Yeah, my. I'm sorry, Mike. This is is uh, Sandra on? Is I just got on? on, John. I
0: just she... tuned in.
1: I'm oh, sorry. Okay. I yeah, I just came on. See y'all.
0: All right. Take care. All right. Very good. Welcome, Sandra.
1: I, uh, my phone had to be charged to help us out here.
0: Oh, <laughs> I know that tune. Yeah, All right. I know. <laughs> All right, so here we go. Top of uh, Daniel 3, we'll get as far as we can uh, make it today. King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now, it, it strikes me, I don't know about you, how King Nebuchadnezzar's narcissism bounced him like a pinball in and out of truth and in and out of a connection with God. Have you noticed that? Remember after Daniel had told the king what his dream was and then interpreted it? You remember what what King Nebuchadnezzar said? uh, And this is uh, back earlier in in chapter uh, 2. The king said to Daniel, truly your God, is the greatest of gods. The Lord over kings, a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal his secret. So the moment we think Nebuchadnezzar is actually getting it, uh, he goes off the rails again. And so after admitting that Daniel's God is is the best God, King Nebuchadnezzar goes and he constructs an image of himself a gold image that's 90 feet tall and nine feet wide, making him a god. Now, the gold statue, and think about the dimensions here. They're not proportional to a human, right? 90 feet tall and nine feet wide. That's a 10 to 1 ratio. We human beings are not 10 to 1 ratios. Uh, I mean, this statue is really skinny, compared to its uh, its height so either the the measurements were off as daniel is reporting them or the statue was intentionally distorted uh, by king nebuchadnezzar now the gold i can understand remember um in the original vision of the dream the head of the giant man that nebuchadnezzar saw the head was gold and so apparently he borrowed that to make that idea, to make a, a statue of himself. So it was a, a gold statue, or at least it was a statue uh, with a covering of gold. Be pretty hard to do a solid gold statue, 90 feet high, nine feet wide. Maybe they were able to do that. I'm wondering possibly if if it was a a, a gold covering. Anyway.
1: Do you know, that, my, oh, yes. I don't want to interrupt, but. Um, no, go ahead. How did they get the gold? Does it ever say in the Bible? Does it say they mined for gold? Was it just laying on the sand, or what is your take on no, that? No, they
0: they mined for gold. Absolutely, just like they
1: do today. Okay.
0: Yeah, right. just well w- with more primitive methods, obviously, but yes, they uh, they mined for gold. Absolutely, and other okay. other minerals as well. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So. No. Why this statue? Why does King Nebuchadnezzar do this? Well, let's let's read on. Verse 2, then, after constructing this statue, he sent messages to the high officers, officials, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the provincial officials to come to the dedication of the statue that he had set up. So all these officials came and stood before the statue King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Verse four, then a herald shouted out, people of all races and nations and languages, listen to the king's command. When you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and other musical instruments, bow to the ground to worship King Nebuchadnezzar's gold statue. Anyone who refuses to obey will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. So at the sound of the musical instruments, all the people, whatever their race or nation or language, bowed to the ground and worshiped the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So this was really as much of a political issue as it was a spiritual issue. Some commentators suggest that King Nebuchadnezzar was u- using this statue to try to unify the, the empire, uh, to use his image as the unifying catalyst throughout all the, the uh, empire of, of Babylon, so that all the, uh, all the empire would be under his command, and he, was, he would be recognized as the unifying factor And that may have been one way uh, that he thought to accomplish that, at least uh, in his mind. And what lends credence, I think, to King Nebuchadnezzar's political focus in putting up the statue is uh, found in verses two and three. Notice there are seven or eight political uh, classes of political authorities that are listed. And the distinctions are are better noted, I think, in the more traditional translation. So I'm going to reread uh, verses two and three from the English Standard Version. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all of the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So let's look at just very briefly those uh, those categories that he summoned. The satraps—they were uh, official representatives of the king. Uh, we might we might equate them maybe to ambassadors. Uh, I would say maybe that's one of the one of the closest things that we could recognize there. The prefects were military commanders of the time, the prefects. The governors were civil administrators. (laughs) Counselors were advisors to the king. The treasurers were self-explanatory. They were in charge of, of the finances and taxes and such. The justices were administrators of the law. Probably we might consider them like the state Supreme Court justices or the uh, federal uh, Supreme Court justices. And the magistrates would be more like our uh, judges on the municipal and, and county level. So these are the various categories of the officials um, who were the, and the officials of the provinces, by the way, were probably those who served the, the satraps or, or the ambassadors. So by gathering all of these governmental authorities together and by demanding that they and the people of the kingdom bow down and worship King Nebuchadnezzar, it appears he was setting up a dual rule, both a political, and a religious system of government, both king and God. Now, what does that remind you of? Who does that remind you of that we just studied? Anybody hazard a a guess there? Reminds me of the Antichrist, right? Started out as a political figure uh, bringing peace, and then with the aid of the false prophet, he added the religious aspect, the, super, the uh, spiritual aspect. So the Antichrist wound up being both the political and the spiritual leader of the one world order. And so I, I think what we see here in King Nebuchadnezzar is a foreshadowing of what the Antichrist would be like, although King Nebuchadnezzar, although very intelligent, not quite as shrewd and cagey and uh, maybe sophisticated as, as the Antichrist. So it appears that when these governmental authorities that are mentioned in the verses here were being summoned, they weren't told why they were going to the desert location. All they got was King Nebuchadnezzar wants you in the, in the plains of Dura and get there now. That's all they knew. They, they apparently had no idea what was coming down. And I'm sure there was plenty of conversation amongst them as they approached the area and saw this 90 foot high by nine foot wide statue uh, of uh, King Nebuchadnezzar. And I I would think probably their jaws dropped a little bit. Like, what in the world is he doing now?
1: How long uh, do you think uh, it took them to build this statue?
0: That is a great question, Brenda. And we don't really know. A couple of uh, theories about that. We think probably he was not constructing it until Daniel told him the dream. Now, we don't have an exact timeline About how much time, you know, expired between Daniel telling him the dream and the construction of the statue. Um, I think probably it went up as fast as they could because Nebuchadnezzar had this wonderful uh, idea now that, gee, I I was the gold head on that thing in my dream. And I'm going to make myself gold and have people worship me. Yeah, so it it is a great question. Thought about it myself, but we don't really have a handle on when that timeline was. I would say this I would side with those who would say it was not constructed before the dream. Okay. Um, Yeah, I think it's, yeah, I, I, and again, this is my opinion, and it's only my opinion, but I think, you know, probably that uh, that was the inspiration for the statue good question it's just we don't have a okay. we don't have this a good case. answer to it yeah yeah and again because of its size i suspect that it was possibly uh gold coated rather than solid gold it, it, it would be di- very difficult to uh put a mold of, of solid gold you know 90 90 feet uh 90 feet high mm-hmm. all right so back to these uh, governmental officials they learned from the herald that when the music starts, time to bow down. Now, that's very shrewd planning by King Nebuchadnezzar. He doesn't give his, his government officials any heads up on this, so uh, they don't have time to think about it. When they arrive at the plane where this huge statue is, they learn with everybody else from the herald, when you hear the music, bow down. Now, what official, knowing King Nebuchadnezzar's uh lust for violence is is going to not obey him when, when the music starts, you know. So I think Nebuchadnezzar very shrewdly thought to himself, I'm not going to prepare them for this. I'm going to catch them by surprise. I know they'll bow down. And the and the strategy here is the people will see all the government officials bow down. And so they will think, well, I I guess we should follow them and and, uh, and follow suit. And, and I think it must have been a very impressive assembly of people near and far. Now, not everyone from all points of the, of the empire were able to be there, and I'm sure a lot of people uh, were not able to come one reason or another from Babylon as well, but uh, the majority of people were there. Awesome uh, assembly of people. And um, it was, uh, you know, to use music, again, this speaks to Nebuchadnezzar's uh, shrewdness. Music is a very powerful motivator. And so when the music starts, you know, there's, there's emotion that comes with music. And so when the music starts, everybody starts to bow down. And, and, um, and they're certainly thinking it is much better to do this than to be burned alive. So there was a lot of impetus for uh, for bowing down there. All right, so to review, Harold shouted out, people of all races, nations, and languages, listen to the king's command. When you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harps, pipes, and other musical instruments, bow to the ground to worship King Nebuchadnezzar's gold statue. And then this is the important part. Anyone who refuses to obey will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Uh, no, no trial here, no appeals. You don't bow down, you get burned, literally. So at the sound of the musical instruments in verse seven, all the people, whatever their race, nation, or language, bowed to the ground and worshiped the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And as the late night commercials say, but wait, there's more. Among the wise men of Babylon was a race that was well known for its record keeping and knowledge of the stars, and they were astrologers known as the Chaldeans, and I'm sure you remember the Chaldeans from Old Testament uh, literature. The Chaldeans at this point basically occupied the southern part of Babylon, uh, the, the, and, and again, Babylon would be in what we know as modern-day Iraq, uh, probably south-southeast of, of Baghdad. And there's some debate about whether at this time the Chaldeans were still a, a literal race of people, or whether they the word Chaldean was simply used to refer to these uh, astrologers and these occupants, in the southern part of of Babylon. We're not sure, but the fact that uh, we know the Chaldeans as a race, I'm thinking that they were still probably uh, a a racial um, people demographic in that part of the city. Now, these Chaldeans, these astrologers, they noticed something. They noticed who did not bow down to the king's image of himself. Uh, The more... traditional uh translations say that the chaldeans but some of the chaldeans or astrologers went to the king and informed on the jews they said to king nebuchadnezzar long live the king always good you know to suck up to the king when he's in the mood to burn people here so long live the king they said you issued a decree requiring all the people to bow down and worship the gold statue when they hear the sound of the horn flute, zither lyre, harp, pipes, and other musical instruments. That decree also states, the reminding the king of what he said, that decree also states that those who refuse to obey must be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews, and they name them Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego whom you have put in charge of the province of Babylon, they pay no attention to you, your majesty. They refuse to serve your gods and do not worship the gold statue you have set up. So these Chaldeans are informers. And what prompted them to inform Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, to, to rat them out, we don't really know. The Chaldeans here were under Daniel's authority. Maybe they resented that. Remember uh, King Nebuchadnezzar put Daniel and Daniel in charge of all the wise men of the kingdom after he correctly identified the king's dream and interpreted it. So, and it maybe the Chaldeans weren't too happy about having a Jew over them, uh, who probably exposed a lot of their funny business and, uh, and expose them as, as frauds. So the accusations were not meekly brought to the king. The Aramaic, and remember the first uh, part of Daniel here is written in Aramaic because that's the language of the non-Jew or the Gentile of the time. The Aramaic, uh, Aramaic phrase, informed for the Jews, is actually a very sh- uh, harsh set of words meaning not just to rat them out, but to destroy them by telling the king. So the intent here was to destroy Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, not to just uh, note that they uh, that they didn't bow down. Now, you may be asking yourselves, okay, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, where was Daniel? We don't know. Very interesting. Apparently... Either Daniel wasn't there, or he wasn't noticed, which would be kind of bizarre because he's, you know, he he is of such high repute and such a high pish, uh, position now in the kingdom. Either Daniel wasn't there, or they didn't notice him. I don't know. We don't know. But for some reason, only Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were seen not bowing down uh, to the statue. So, the word, the Aramaic, Aramaic word um, for informing here is karats, karats, which means to eat the morsels of anyone, literally to chew them up. And so, uh, the, the figurative language here would be uh, to inform is the purpose is to denounce, to slander and to accuse maliciously. So this was a move to destroy Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, not not just a mild accusation like, oh man, king, did you see that? They didn't bow down to you. This was a calculated thing by the Chaldeans to get rid of them. All right, here's the outcome as, uh, as this drama heats up, pun intended. Verse 13, Then Nebuchadnezzar flew into a rage. He does that quite a bit, if you haven't noticed. He flew into a rage and ordered that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought before him. And when they were brought in, Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is this true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you refuse to serve my gods or to worship the gold statue I have set up? I will give you one more chance to bow down and worship the statue I have made when you hear the sound of the musical instruments. But if you refuse, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace, and then what God will be able to rescue you from my power? Now, do you find this very interesting? The original dictate here, the original penalty announced by Nebuchadnezzar was if you don't bow down to my statue, when you hear the music, you immediately get thrown into the furnace. Why doesn't he immediately throw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the furnace? We're not told, but I I have some thoughts about that, and feel free to chime in if you do as, as well. Number one, I think, king nebuchadnezzar realizes he spent three years educating these guys he spent three years desensitizing them from their jewish heritage he thought and making them into babylonians plus he invested a lot in them to become leaders of his kingdom and if you remember going back it wasn't just you know, they lived at the Motel 6 and showed up for school at 8 o'clock in the morning. He put them in the best accommodations that were available. He gave them the best food. Now, it turns out, if you remember, that uh, they couldn't eat the food because of their Jewish uh, laws about, uh, about food and, and what they could consume. But uh, he gave them the best of the best. And when they said, no, we can only eat vegetables, he came. He gave them the best vegetables that were available. He spent a lot of money on these guys. He invested a lot. So I'm thinking that went through his mind. I don't want to just throw my money away here. I made a great investment in these guys. And so <laughs> he uh, he winds up giving them one more chance. And he is... I think repeating this as well as an option for non-compliance. He wants to show his positional authority as a, as a God himself, daring them to find another God to save them from his punishment if they disobey him. Those are my thoughts on it. I don't know what if you have any, but uh, that's what came to me at two o'clock this morning anyway. Okay. Going on. Here's how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego respond, picking up in verse uh, 15. Or is it 16? 16. Okay. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, The God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. And then there's an interesting but in verse 18. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. So Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego understood God's command. You shall have no other gods before me. That's the first commandment in the in the 10 commandments. And so whether God chose to save them or let them burn, they are not going to violate the set of the first commandment and also the second commandment is is in play here as well the second commandment if you remember is you uh you know you you shall not make a uh a graven image uh of another god which they you know promptly did you know once Moses went up the mountain and and uh Aaron and everybody else you know crafted these other uh gods so Nebuchadnezzar Flies into a rage. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are hanging on to the first two commandments and perhaps fueled by the confidence. You know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego apparently did not come in a fear based way to Nebuchadnezzar. They were calmly confident. You throw us in the furnace, our God is going to rescue us. And even if he chooses not to rescue us, we're not going to bow down. All right. So here's what happens. Uh, verse 19. Nebuchadnezzar was so furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that his face became distorted with rage. Isn't that interesting? My read there is it's the enemy involved there. there there's uh, a demonic change in Nebuchadnezzar the fact that his face became distorted with rage I'm reading into that there's probably a demonic presence at work here he commanded that the furnace be heated seven times hotter than normal then he ordered some of the strongest men of his army to bind Shadrach Meshach and Abednego and throw them into the blazing (laughs) furnace Well, now, it's interesting to me that King Nebuchadnezzar ordered the fire heated up seven times hotter than normal. Why? If you think about Nebuchadnezzar being a real rapscallion, a a cooler fire would have tortured Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And for some reason, he didn't want them tortured. He just wanted them literally nuked. He wanted it hot enough so that immediately when they're put in there, uh, they they burst into flames and turned into ashes. He, he wanted an immediate death, instantaneous results. And uh, I think probably he wanted that so that the people around there would, would get the message that he was not to be trifled with. Now, scholars, what kind of furnace is this? What was it used for? Well, it was used for killing people. (laughs) That was the purpose of this furnace. Scholars surmise that the furnace of the time would have had uh, an opening at the top. Now, I'm not sure how tall it was. My guess is probably at least six feet, uh, I would think, thinking of, and maybe maybe a little smaller uh, or a little less tall considering the height of the people at the time but anyway probably uh, tall enough to accommodate adult men or women and and wide enough to accommodate several people in there and uh, so apparently uh the fuel was dumped in through a hole in the top of the furnace which is ha- also where the uh, condemned people were were dumped in but there was another opening at the bottom and that was where you swept out the ashes, uh, just like in uh, furnaces of old. In our construction, you would have that uh, little uh, plate that you would remove in, on the outside of the house, and you would sweep the ashes uh, out. So from all accounts, this was designed to be a, a uh, execution chamber, and that's what, that's all it was there for. And since King Nebuchadnezzar apparently could see into, furnace, into the furnace, there apparently must have been some other opening through which he and observers could watch the execution. So possibly three openings, the one at the top for the fuel and for the people to be dumped in, and then the one at the bottom to sweep out the ashes, and apparently maybe a third one where they were able to observe what was, uh, what was going on. All right, verse 21. So they tied them up and threw them into the furnace, fully dressed in their pants, turbans, robes, and other garments. Now, why this note about clothing? Well, because it was customary to remove all the clothing of uh, people to be executed before they were executed. So they would be uh, put into the furnace with absolutely nothing on. But King Nebuchadnezzar apparently was so amped up and mad and furious and outraged that he wanted instantaneous results. So he didn't bother to have the clothing of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego removed. He just threw them into the fire. He had them thrown into the fire with all their their clothes on, which was not the way it was normally done. Now the furnace was superheated. And it turns out that did not bode well for the the strong soldiers that uh, threw our three heroes into the furnace, because even though they were not in the furnace, they got burned up just being near it, near the top, as they threw the three men in. All right, let's pick up in verse uh, 22. And because the king in his anger had demanded such a hot fire in the furnace, the flames killed the soldiers as they threw the three men in. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, securely tied, fell into the roaring flames. Verse 24. But suddenly Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in amazement and exclaimed to his advisors, didn't we tie up three men and throw them into the furnace? Yes, your majesty, we certainly did. They replied. Look. Nebuchadnezzar shouted, I see four men unbound walking around in the fire unharmed. And the fourth looks like a god. And aside from just having fun with it, that's why I played that Johnny Cash song at the beginning, The Fourth Man, because the song is about Jesus Christ being in that furnace. Uh, the more literal Uh, you know what?
1: My translation, I have the New King James, and it says. And the fourth is like the son uh, of God,
0: right? Exactly. Better
1: than a god.
0: Yeah, and the uh, the English standard version is is quite similar, uh, Brenda. Uh, he answered and said, "But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods." Okay. Uh, Yeah. So this fourth man who has the appearance of being a son of the gods, who is it most likely, and I agree with this, that this is a reference to the pre-incarnate Christ, Jesus himself. In the Old Testament, and we've referred to this, you know, many, many times over the years, this is called a theophany. Anytime there is an appearance of God, either in human form Uh, or as in a a cloud or a pillar of fire, that is called a theophany, an appearance of God. And when we look at these theophanies in the Old Testament, a lot of them, I think, we can make the case that they are appearances of the pre-incarnate Christ, and those are called Christophanies, Christophanies. So theophanies are appearances of the presence of God through whatever image he chooses at that time, Christophanies are the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, and often it's triggered by the the, uh, phrase, an angel of the Lord. Now, a theophany, by the way, is not always a Christophany. A theophany could also mean other forms of the presence of God, a thunderstorm a fire, <laughs> like in Moses's case, uh, a cloud, uh, the glory of the Lord, a human figure, a warrior, even a chariot. Uh, so anyway, there's the distinction between theophany, uh, an appearance, a presence of God, and the Christophany, which would be a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ himself. Pre-incarnate, obviously, meaning meaning uh before he was uh, come to earth as, as a baby. All right, so in this case, it's, uh, we think, and I, I would agree with this, uh, Christophany is a specific appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ, and King Nebuchadnezzar obviously would have no idea about who the Messiah is, no idea about Jesus, but it's in- interesting that, as Brenda noted, he senses the fourth figure is like a son of the gods. Something about, and I, I believe it's probably Jesus's presence here, communicated to King Nebuchadnezzar, this is not just any man. This is not just any spirit. This is a son of the gods. Now, Nebuchadnezzar would have believed in many gods. He he was not monotheistic. Um, so he would think of this as this... Is a human form and yet with the power of the gods. And and so I think there's a message underlying there for Nebuchadnezzar that he may not have fully understood. All right, verse 26, I think it is. Yes. Then Nebuchadnezzar came as close as he could to the door of the flaming furnace and he shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the most high God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stepped out of the fire. Then the high officers, officials, governors, and advisors crowded around them and saw that the fire had not touched them. Not a hair on their heads was singed and their clothing was not scorched. They didn't even smell of smoke or even of barbecue sauce and then nebuchadnezzar said praise to the god of shadrach meshach and abednego he sent his angel to rescue these servants who entrusted in him they defied the king's command and were willing to die rather than serve or worship any god except their own god therefore i make this decree and here we go with nebuchadnezzar again he's like a pinball in a pinball machine You know, he he goes off the rails, and then something happens. God does something in front of him, and suddenly he's back on the rails, and he'll go off again. But at this point, anyway, he's he's thinking straight. If any people, whether their race or whatever their race, nation, or language, speak a word against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego— now he gets a little radical here. They will be turn, torn limb from limb, and their houses will be turned into heaps of rubble. There is no other god who can rescue like this. You know, Nebuchadnezzar always seems to overreact. Like he said, he's like a pinball in a pinball machine. You just can't. He he just he just can't stay put. I think he probably had ADHD. I'm I'm thinking, and so he gets close to the truth, and then his violent control issues kick in again and he makes commands like i'm gonna do capital punishment if you don't follow the god of shadrach meshach and abednego now notice the next to the last line of verse 29 look at it if it's in front of you there what does the next to the last line say they will be torn limb from limb and their houses will be turned into heaps of rubble Does that sound vaguely familiar to you? Well, it should, because it's the same thing he said in chapter two. Let me uh, go to chapter two and rehearse verse five for you. But the king said to his astrologer, his astrologers, I am serious about this. If you don't tell me what my dream was and what it means, here we go. You will be torn limb from limb, and your houses will be burned into heaps of rubble. So apparently that's his thing. If you don't obey me, I'm going to tear you from limb to limb, and I'm going to reduce your houses into rubble. It's word for word. He doesn't even come up with a a new way to uh, destroy people. Interesting. So apparently he had a thing about, you know, tearing limb from limb and turning houses into heaps of rubble. So that's the second time we've We've seen this specific threat. Now, you may wonder about the order of of, of that, by the way. Look look, look at the progression. I will tear them limb from limb, then turn their houses into heaps of rubble. Well, if these guys are in pieces, I don't think they're going to care about their houses being heaps of rubble. (laughs) But I think there's an underlying strategy here by King Nebuchadnezzar, and that is not only is he going to destroy these guys, not only is he going to tear them apart limb from limb, he's going to reduce their houses to heaps of rubble. Who are living in their houses? Their families, their wives, and if they were females, their husbands their children, their grandchildren, great-grandma, great-grandpa maybe. So the whole family is punished here, not just the people torn from limb from limb. The whole family is either destroyed when the houses are destroyed, or at least they're displaced, and their whole history goes up into a heap of rubble. Their family history is gone. And so there's a, a terrible side effect here that, uh, that King Nebuchadnezzar is initiating. That is not only does he destroy the people, but, and we would call it like the cancel culture of today. He cancels their whole family. They're done. They have nothing left. They're through. And it, it just shows how horrible uh, the man was. All right, so let's uh, conclude our, our drama here with the end of verse 29 to the end, or verse 29 to the end. Therefore, I make this decree, if any people, whatever their race or nation or language, speak a word against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, (coughs) they will be torn limb from limb, and their houses will be turned into heaps of rubble. There is no other God who can rescue like this. And then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to even higher positions in the province of Babylon. So as as we wrap up, and that's the end of chapter three, as we wrap up, as we've mentioned before, I think King Nebuchadnezzar is a, (coughs) excuse me, kind of a, a foreshadowing of the Antichrist himself. And although Nebuchadnezzar was shrewd, and sharp in his own way, he paled into com- uh, in comparison to the Antichrist, who we studied, who had even greater deviousness and bloodlust uh, in, in what we've seen of him in Revelation. So anyway, that's, uh, that is uh, Daniel chapter 3, and uh, next week, God's going to give Nebuchadnezzar another dream, a second dream, and uh, we'll see what what happens with uh, with that one. So, any observations? Any thoughts? Any questions? As we uh, as we close out chapter three today.
1: It was very uh, interesting how how you looked at that uh, uh, tearing into pieces and uh, trashing their houses. Uh, because what they could care less about that <laughs> is the life they're interested in right. but it was the families, the families and, and looking at that and it slid right by that but uh, uh, you, you pointed that out and uh, that's, that's why the intensity of the study just reading it you've got to go back into your books and and uh, that, uh that uh, from the scholars and how they looked at it. Um, so that was, uh, you, you do a tremendous amount of studying on this, Mike, and, and the words you use, <laughs> I've already forgot them. <laughs> so, I'd well, be thank- in the furnace
0: for yeah, yeah, thank you. I, you know, I, I just think we, we need to plow through this with some trepidation about missing things. And I don't want to miss anything. I think this is really important. I think we did a, a fairly good job of that in Revelation, and I think we need to do a, a similar conscientious job in in Daniel uh, as well. And, and at first, you know, it's interesting, John, at first blush, I thought, well, that's dumb. Why would you reduce their houses to rubble when they're already dead well oh. then the thought came to me that there's probably a figurative and literal meaning to the houses being demolished and that has to do with erasing their history and erasing their futures um, so if the family is displaced and or killed not only are these people executed. But their families are erased forever as well, and that just shows the the sad, barbarian mind of, of Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, and we're and obviously we're going to see that time and time again as as we progress through the Book of Daniel.
1: Well, I think the other thing too, mm-hmm. you, you made a point last week that the for the Jewish people particularly, um, their history was very important to them their bloodline their history their family much more so than ours is to us
0: yes yeah yeah it's their um i mean it's it's their connection with their god with yahweh and so much of, of the jewish life is centered around god you know even for those modern day Jews who are not particularly Orthodox there's still the identification with their God, most of them and right. uh, and, and by eliminating that, you know I, again I think Nebuchadnezzar was very shrewd here he eliminates the influence and but you know so the second time around uh, ironically uh, they would have been erased, and all of their history with God, because uh, uh, people didn't didn't worship the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So it's kind of a um, a, a different case here. The Jewish people are going to honor the, their God, it, but it's the um, Gentiles now that their history is going to be reduced to nothing if if they don't uh, aren't compelled. And of course, this is never a good idea, never a good idea for the government, for the state to become the church and for the church to become the state. God did not ordain it that way. He ordained them to be separate entities, the church and the state. And, uh, Constantine, uh, really showed that, that 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 whole thing was not a good idea and again <clears throat> for any of us who have been to a, through a congregational meeting where we can spend hours arguing about what color the carpet should be in the lobby you don't want the church running the state either and uh, having worked for government i don't want the state running the church either so anyway i'll get off that soapbox okay any any other comments before we uh, close yep. today out
1: yes Mike on uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar what specifically was his acknowledgement of his ninety foot statue and all that effort that went into that now feeling that the God that saved uh, uh, me check and and uh, the fellows what what do you think how do what do you see that he felt gee whiz I had a statue here and you were talking about Satan being involved in this um, now how 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 would he explain all of a sudden anybody that doesn't uh, um Look at uh, at the the god of uh, of of uh, the boys meshach and and Abednego, shadrach what what do you see there what what
0: that is a terrific question John. Thank you for asking it, and I should have included it in the study. great question here's here's my answer. after king nebuchadnezzar set up the statue after he sees shadrach meshach and abednego and in the pre-incarnate christ in the furnace and he sees the three men come out without even being singed or even smelling of smoke he still is um okay i'm blanking out what, what's the opposite of monotheistic Polytheistic. Thank you. Boy, Pastor Mike's synapses just aren't firing as well as they should here. Thank you. He is still polytheistic. He still believes in other gods. And the reason I I say, so uh, to, to answer the question in two parts, number one, John, I think he leaves the statue up there because He doesn't say you can't worship the statue. Watch what he says. Let me read this very carefully. Um, Therefore, I make this decree. If any people, whatever their race or nation or language, and here it is, speak a word against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they will be torn from limb to limb. Notice he doesn't say, if any people don't worship the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he's not saying you have to worship their God. He's not saying you, can't, you have to stop worshiping the statue that I erected of myself. What he's saying is, if you speak a word against their God, who has saved them from that furnace, I will tear you from limb to limb. So what he's acknowledging in his mind is, among the many gods that he believes there are, including himself, this God is just proven to be another one who appears to be more powerful than the rest of us. I don't know any of us. I don't know any of the other gods that could save those guys in the furnace. That God they believe in, that God is really powerful. So my people, if you utter any word against that God, who I know now is very powerful, I'm going to kill you. See, so he still maintains his polytheism. It's just that he's saying you can't speak against their God. You don't have to worship their God. He doesn't say you have to worship their God. He just says you cannot speak against their God. Does that does that help with that answer, John?
1: Yeah, yes, yes, it does. Yes, it does. Uh, thank you for some clearing that up. But I also look at this as when they're coming out of Egypt and uh, he stops he, he 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 stops the water, he removes the waves back and leaves the space to get through. Anybody that would see that, how could you have any other conclusion that this is just too much for too much for me? And now I've got a furnace seven times higher than it would normally, and uh, it kills the uh, the soldiers just getting them in there. This to me, I just can't understand how anybody that would see that would say huh, there isn't another God that could do this. This is the only God. But old Nebuchadnezzar evidently was—he uh, was a uh, a uh, a real character there, as far as that. He 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 spoke with a fork and tongue, and so now looking at all of the all of the political stuff that we hear. And we know, if you really study what they're saying, and have a background of them, you're going to see the same kind of a same kind of a pitch, aren't you? The same kind of a program that they're putting.
0: That's very deceptive. Uh, Well, and, and that's, see that that's the enemy's greatest weapon. One of his greatest weapons is deception, and the other is intimidation, and intimidation comes through deception, deceiving us into think, thinking he's more powerful than he really is, and I think that's the issue for King Nebuchadnezzar is he is highly influenced by the demonic. Um, I don't know whether, well, well, we'll see as we go through Daniel here. Uh, how, that, how that plays in, but I, I think that that's the big thing, John, is that the enemy has his talons uh, deep into Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar just can't see straight. You know, he has moments of rational thought, but he is so steeped in deception and evil that he can never quite see things clearly for more than about a nanosecond. So anyway, good, good question, John. E- excellent. Any other thoughts? Any other questions? Anybody else has?
1: Did we hear much of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego after that?
0: We'll find out.
1: And, and did, they ever, <laughs> did they ever return to um, the, uh, the Jewish, to Judah?
0: uh don't believe so but i can't i can't say that for sure okay i don't i don't know that we know but i'll find out yeah i i can't answer that right now no
1: well you you've
0: done a, okay
1: just a one study uh, for us giving it that and and uh uh, it's certainly appreciative i know we all are so appreciative of your of your effort your work uh getting this out and getting everything that's available uh to it amazing oh, when thank when you, it's Jim. so it's difficult mike it's so difficult it's difficult for me uh, when you when you listen to people speak uh, and and uh uh, on the political side. You don't have to be political. It could be anything. What are they really talking about? Uh, how, are they, how are they juggling their words? And, and what do they really mean by what they're saying? Uh, and I, I, am I right or am I wrong? Uh, don't you have to know quite a bit about uh, what they've done and who they are? We're learning about these different uh, folks in the Bible, things that they've done and so um, then it's being analyzed isn't that the same as anything else
0: yeah I think (laughs) if you take if you take the lessons learned here and apply them to now which I think is where you're going with that very important in my opinion to research and look at in in terms of politics, look at voting records, look at past history, uh, because words are cheap. But actions tell us who the person really is, and whether or not they practice what they preach, and whether or not they can be trusted to bring about what they promise. Uh, So, Yeah, I guess that's one of the lessons learned here. Yeah, is is uh, knowledge is power, and knowing as much truth as we can ferret out is uh, is good. John, could I uh, could I ask you to close us out in prayer today?
1: Yes, yes. Uh, So, Father, this is this is really an extraordinary study. Uh, Every study in your Word in the Bible. Mother is is extraordinary, and what, we're, what is being learned is is how you lay this out for us, and what its meaning for us in the day that we live. The interpretations of what's being done and what's being said, and how it affects our lives, and and the and the most important. In my opinion, is the fact, Father, uh, and I thank you for it, is that uh, it's one day at a time, and uh, we study for that day, and we ask uh, for your spirit uh, to just continually be with us and and, and give us the give us the uh, the hope and and uh, that we can have to know that what we're reading in this book. Is 100% pure, and that's that's the joy of it. And learning now in Daniel and going back to to uh, uh, the folks leaving Egypt uh, and how they got out, how significant that was, just just unimaginable. And now we've got a fire, Father, that that's so powerful that men died just getting something in there. Um, And yet they come out unscorched. I would think that the people would see that, would just be so but absolutely overwhelmed with how that could happen and how it could be, knowing now, Father, that you are the God. You are the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. No question about it in in our minds. And I know in our, um, our, our brothers and sisters here, is just wonderful, You're giving us hope that when we hear things and we make it the, the battle from day to day, the minute we walk out of our front door and uh, life hits us, uh, that we can be more confident with your love and your understanding and your direction for us and the Holy Spirit that we can get through each day and, and just be more comfortable. Because you're in our life, and we just, we just, we just thank you, and we love you, uh, we just cherish you. In the name of Jesus, Father, we thank you. Amen.